Thank you for joining us for today's message. We're always encouraged to know how God is using this ministry to change lives. If you have a story to share about how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending us an email to amen at imtheexchange.com. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at imtheexchange.com. Doing this will help us to bless others and bring messages to you each week. Today's message is from our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. Please take a moment and prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Now listen, the purpose of this series is it's a how-to series. How to say no. Everybody say no. To the emotions that compete for control. Because here's the reality. We all have things going on inside of us that are competing for control. They are fighting to control you. Now, if you look at me and you go, yeah, absolutely, that's not true, then you are an anomaly, okay? Because you're the first person I've ever met that's not having things happen inside them that are always competing for control. They, they compete for control of your life. They compete for control of your mouth, say amen. They compete control of your mood. Don't touch your neighbor and say amen. Uh, and, and they do that, right? And they, they control, try to control your mouth and your mood and your mouth and your mood. And they try to control, and they create fights and they create dysfunction. And, and if we're not careful, we allow these emotions to gain control of our life. When they gain control of our life, they begin to lead and dictate other areas of our life. And we become unbalanced. And, and in essence, they start to harm and distract us from relationships that are important to us. And, and we start to start to lose sight of things that are important to us because these emotions uh, start to take control. Uh, we talked about, Kevin, Pastor Kevin talked about this a few weeks ago, about envy. And we, we said to envy, envy, you're not my boss. Uh, last week we talked about, or a few weeks ago, we talked about guilt and how guilt, you're not my boss, and, and this morning, I'm going to talk about something that Jesus actually talked a lot about. And, uh, and I want to talk about how to keep fear from being our boss. Everybody say fear. Fear is a terrible boss. Uh, now, fear happens to us all, but none of us ever want fear or anxiety or worry. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I know for a fact, there's a lot of people even in this room that have struggled with anxiety and fear and worry. And that's natural. That doesn't make you a bad person. That doesn't make you wrong or whatever. It's, but, but what happens is it can begin to control us and it can begin to steer us down some paths that we don't really want to go. And in fact, some of you could use a healthy dose of fear, right? That's My mom used to always think that because I had a, a motorcycle and I like to go real fast on the motorcycle. Uh, I like to skydive, even though I'm deathly afraid of heights. I've been seven times, and I love skydiving. But uh, some of us could use a little fear in our life when it comes to that. And so some of us use fear as a parenting strategy. I'm not suggesting that we do that. But what happens is fear begins to rob us of opportunities in our life because a lot of us, we, we come in with an unhealthy type of fear, an unhealthy balance of fear, and it starts to kind of control and manipulate. We, we fear maybe certain people. We fear maybe certain elements or types. Of, some, some people have been so manipulated and warped in church systems 
that they kind of fear religion. They fear church. They fear church systems. And, and those kind of fears can be very unhealthy. So nobody really wants fear to be the boss of us. Um, but it's easy for that, that to happen. It robs us of opportunities. It interferes with our relationships. It impacts how we parent. It impacts our marriages. And sometimes fear can keep us up at night. But what's interesting, and you should all probably agree with me, is that not all fear is bad fear. Okay? I mean, sometimes fear can be a good thing. And because fear is actually this. Fear is a byproduct. Okay? It's a byproduct of something that is important that none of us want to give up what creates fear. Now, track along, follow me as I say this, but fear is the byproduct of our ability as human beings to accumulate knowledge, to gather and create knowledge, and then project that knowledge into the future. That's what allows us to fear. It's one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given humanity. It's something that really sets us apart from the rest of creation. It's what sets, it's what really what makes us human is that we're able to collect information. We gather information. Not only that, but we're able to take that information and cast that and, and pass that along to the next generation. And they're able to continue to collect information, pass that on to the next generation, and it builds and it builds and it builds and it builds and it creates. And we progress right and so that's our ability and and as humans we are here today in this room with lights and air conditioners amen and and we have musicians and instruments I mean it didn't sound like this 300 years ago it didn't look like it didn't feel like this we have power, and some of you didn't ride in your horses and chariots or your carriages up here, you know. And, and so we are here today because we have been able to gather information and pass that information, and we have progressed. And, and none of us want to give up that ability, right? The ability that sort of underscores that allows us to fear is also the same ability that allows us to imagine. It's the same ability that allows us to dream big dreams. It's the same ability that allows us to hope in things. Because without it, we would never be able to say, oh, I can't wait. Okay? Because I can't wait is you're anticipating something good that based on what you know right now. Okay? So I can't wait is anticipating that something great is going to happen based on the information that I know right now. And none of us would be willing to give that up just to get rid of all fear. Amen? So it's okay that fear has a little bit of a, a place in our lives. It's just not okay when fear runs or ruins our life. Amen? Our ability to imagine has way more upside than it does downside. It's allowed us to make the world a better place. It's allowed us to invent. It's allowed us to improve our lives. It's allowed us to improve our world, but it also creates the ability to fear because it creates an endless series of what ifs. Mm. But what if, you know? Oh, wow, we could. I can't wait. But what if? 
And all of a sudden, these what ifs begin to come into our lives because what if is a what about the future based on what I know about the present? What if? So sometimes fear is a good thing. I mean, sometimes fear is a good thing in parenting. Again, I don't advise that. But I do appreciate the fact that I can give my kids a single look. And that single look has passed through the room into their eyes. And they process it. And they go from, (laughs) right? I appreciate a healthy dose of that as a parent. I remember as a pastor's kid growing up, my dad would be preaching and he would just be preaching. I'd be over there with my friends. We'd be cutting up. And he'd preach it. And I'd hear it get silent in the room. I could hear him not say anything for a minute. A lot of times he did. He would say, Jared, go sit with your mother. <laughs> that was pretty common. But a lot of times I would just, I would hear silence. I would hear silence. And then I would look up to see what's going on. And he's doing this. It was a healthy dose of fear. Okay, I got it. I got it. So I'm not, I'm not saying to use that. I remember Pastor Kevin one time, he got pinched on the arm by his mom, and he screams out in the middle of the service, don't pinch me. And, you know, so, you know, occasionally that, that healthy dose of fear is okay, but, but there's a place for fear, amen? There's a place for fear. But when fear becomes a boss of you, that's a problem. Okay, when fear runs your life, that's a problem. When fear ruins your life and you go, well, how would fear? Fear ruins a lot of people's life. There are people who won't get out of bad, unhealthy, abusive marriages for fear. There are people who won't get into good, healthy relationships because of fear. And and so it works kind of both ways. And so what's fascinating to me and what's fascinating to you is Jesus says a lot of things about fear But Jesus said some things about fear that's very naive if you listen to it in isolation. Because a part of the problem of the way that you got your Bible and the way that I got my Bible, the way that we read our Bible, is we read our Bible and we kind of book in a lot of the stories. So we'll take a story in the Bible and we, we read it like once upon a time. And then at the end of that story, we go, the end. And that's the end of that story. And it's all these isolated events. But that's not really the way it's supposed to go. Jesus, especially especially Jesus, Jesus took a lot of things. And everything Jesus did throughout the entire New Testament was linked. Okay? None of what Jesus did was an isolated incident. So... Once upon a time, there's these 12 disciples that are journeying with Jesus, and Jesus has decided he's going to teach them, and he does throughout his entire ministry with the apostles, with the disciples. He wants to teach them on fear, okay? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. He's talking about fear, and he's trying to teach them about fear, and if they were to say to him, Jesus, just what's the bottom line? What are you trying to get to here? Jesus would say this, fear not, okay? Fear not. It's so easy to say and so unbelievably hard to do, okay? Fear not. Well, thank you, Jesus. That's insightful. That's pretty genius, but that actually gives us nothing to work with, okay? See, we can get into a church environment, and I can go, fear not, and we go, whoa, whoa, goosebumps. I love it, but you don't do it, (laughs) right? 
It's easy to say. I mean, we just feel like, man, the power of God is coming down in this place. Fear not, for I am with you. But we fear a lot, knowing that he's hopefully with us. And so and to put it in words today, he's saying, don't let fear be your boss. Okay? That's what he's trying to say. So in his message, he's saying, stop being afraid. Don't be afraid. It's easy to say, but it's virtually impossible to do. And so he's with his first century followers, the apostles. They felt the same way because Jesus all the time was saying, don't fear, don't fear, don't fear, fear not, don't fear, fear not, don't fear. And they were like, okay, we get it. We hear you. We're, we're trying to do whatever it is you're saying. But man, Jesus, this is, this is really difficult. And so Jesus is with the 12 apostles. Now, if you've been trekking with us for a while, you'll understand that everywhere Jesus went, as we say this a lot, everywhere he went, he had a crowd with him. Then, inside of that mass crowd, he had a little smaller crowd, and it was still a crowd, and those were called his disciples. And then, he had a smaller crowd, which are people that he handpicked and he chose, and those are called his apostles. And so... Jesus is, is hand, he just, this, this is the story we're going with today, one of them. He handpicks his apostles. Now, that's a prequel story right there, right? Can you imagine being handpicked out of, I mean, it's easy for us to go, wow, that would have been awesome. Back then, I don't know if it was that big of a deal because they hadn't seen everything yet. You know, we kind of have a bird's eye view of Jesus, so we're like, whoa, but back then, they were like, shh, you know, yeah, I'll follow you, I mean, you're a great guy, I've seen some cool things, and I feel this unction to follow you, so sure, so he just has appointed his uh, inner circle, his 12 apostles, he gets them together, and he says, listen, I'm going to give you the narrative, I'm going to give you the overview of of what this is going to look like, uh, now that you've signed up, and you're going to follow me, um, I'm going to send you out as sheep to the wolves. Okay? You're going you're gonna to be beaten. You're going to be arrested. And uh, don't be afraid. End of sermon. Right? And the apostles are sitting there listening to him. They're like, what? And now to us, this is just language. It's just kind of a figure of speech. Just not, but to them, this was real. They, they dealt with sheep. They dealt with wolves. This was a big deal. So when, when Jesus says, I'm going to send you out like sheep to wolves, they saw that all that's left when that happens is some hooves on the ground and a bloody mess. Okay? It doesn't end well. The disciples have never seen it end well. And so they're probably looking at one another going, did we miss point number two or three or I mean, I wasn't even paying attention. I was daydreaming. I was day- did, what did he say? He said, he's going to send us out like, like sheep to wolves. We're going to be beaten and stuff. And that's it? What's the end? But, but, come on, where's the but? There's got to be a but, right? And he says, I'm going to send you out as like sheep among the wolves. This is what you signed on for. But don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. They're looking at each other like, this is this. How, how is this going to work? I don't, I don't know. He's saying, listen, you're going to go out, and a lot of you are going to be arrested. All of you actually are going to be arrested. All of you are actually going to be beaten. They don't know this, but most of them are actually going to be executed. But don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. No big deal, right? This is a really big deal. 
So Jesus, he's trying to really solidify what he just said. He's telling them how it's going to look. So he takes them on a field trip. This is their first big good field trip. They're excited about this field trip. And when I talk about this field trip, a lot of you, you've read this story. You know this story, but you've read it as an isolated event. So to you, it's just going to be a story. You're going to immediately jump to the end and it's no big deal. But there's more to it because everything is connected. Listen, everything Jesus ever did was on purpose for a purpose. Okay, nothing was by chance, nothing was accident. So this first field trip, he goes, and, and you find this in Matthew 28, and a lot of you know this story, but he says, it says, Matthew writes this, he says, then he got into the boat, and the disciples followed him. Everybody say, followed him. Okay, that's important. Why did they follow him? Because they were followers, <laughs> right? Jesus gets in the boat, they get in the boat. Jesus eats, they eat. Jesus sits down, they sit down. He stands up, they, they were followers. This is what they did. They just followed Jesus. They just did what Jesus did. And so they got in the boat, and, and Matthew tells us that they row out in the middle. They're going across the, the Sea of Galilee, and, and not across the whole thing, but this portion. And they go, and they're headed across some port. At some point in there, Matthew tells us this. He writes this. He says, suddenly... A furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. Okay? Now, this was pretty common in that region, that storms would come and go. But for some reason, Matthew identifies that this was a furious storm. This isn't hyperbole, okay? It's not exaggeration. It was a big storm. And it sweeps over it. And Matthew tells us that the water started coming in the boat. And if you've ever been in a storm like this, you have to speak louder. Now, they didn't have electronics on the boat like we do and lights. They didn't have a motor. You know, they weren't like, let's get out of here. They put up the canopy, put up the canopy. It wasn't like that, okay? Their lanterns probably went out because it's hard to keep a lantern lit in this, okay? So they're out in the middle of this sea and this storm is raging on them. And they're trying to figure out what to do. They're taking on water. So they go to wake up Jesus. Not the way you wake up your kids before school in the morning. Okay? Not like that. They go to him and Matthew says this. Matthew says, and Peter goes and, and he says the same thing. But Jesus, during the storm, but Jesus was sleeping. He was sleeping during this. Now, these aren't big boats. These aren't monster ships. This, they're rowing, okay? So there's a good chance Jesus is soaking wet. This is my opinion. Jesus is faking. We don't know that he's really asleep. Matthew believes him to be asleep. Peter believes him to be asleep. We don't know that. How can you sleep in this and soaking wet, right? There's a point to Jesus' story, so it doesn't matter whether he is or isn't really asleep. So they're yelling because you have to yell in this type of environment. And they go to wake him up, and they said, Jesus, Jesus, wake up, wake up, we're going to drown. We're Lord, save us, we're going to drown. And they're trying to wake him up, and, and they're screaming, and he raises up. He didn't even get up. He probably props himself up on his elbow. And he looks around, he says, ye of little faith. And they said, what, you got hair in your face? 
You little thing! I believe he said it with a smile. He knows where he's going. We don't have hair in our face. We're going to die. And then he says this. He asks him a question, an unbelievably dumb question. You little faith, why are you afraid? What did he say? He asked why we're afraid. He wants to know why we're afraid. I'll tell you why we're afraid. Because we're going to die. Do you see the storm we're taking? We're going to drown. Peter knows how to swim. John don't know nothing. You know, and Andrew, he's crying. Oh, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Why are you asking us why we're afraid? Are you kidding? Look at this storm. It's ridiculous. And then, then Matthew says, he got up. He didn't panic. Okay? He didn't panic. You need to take a note of this. Your God does not panic. Your Savior does not panic. He doesn't get riled up in the midst of your storm. He doesn't fret it. It says he stood up and then he rebuked the wind and the waves and it was completely calm. So these guys are in a boat and it just gets crazy crazy they're screaming they're fearing for the life jesus says this don't be afraid why are you afraid the answer was obvious they were about to die but then jesus stands up and he spoke to the wind and to the waves and it was completely calm now it wasn't uncommon in this region for storms to come barreling through the valley and across the Sea of Galilee. If you go look it up in history, uh, just geographically, that was very common. How long they stayed, who knows? But whatever happened, for some reason, timing, miracle, call it what you want, when Jesus spoke to the wind and to the wave, it stopped. It stopped. And, and, and it stopped, and it just blew the men away. In fact, Matthew writes, and he says, and the men on the boat, they were amazed. <laughs> right? You think? They were amazed. They were blown away. This was unbelievable. And then, after seeing what they just saw, having experienced what they just experienced, they asked the greatest question ever asked. And, and it's a question that if you've been struggling with, Maybe you were a Christian or not a Christian. You've thought about it. Maybe you're kind of in and out. You're just not sure. They asked the great, and there's a lot of great questions we can ask. Like, did God really create the universe? Did God really create the universe seven days? And how did this happen? And how, and did God really do, and is this what it is? How many billion, blah, blah. There's a lot of great questions. But this is one of the greatest questions ever asked. It says, the men were amazed, and they asked, what kind of man is this? That's a question that we need to be asking every day. What kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. 
Now, Mark writes this, and, and, and Mark gets his information from Peter. We believe, most people believe that Peter was illiterate. And so Mark is, is dictating what Peter's writing down, and that's how we get the gospel of Mark. And so, so Mark is writing this down as Peter's telling him the story. And Peter says this to Mark, and Mark writes it down in Mark chapter 4, verse 41. He says this, they feared a great fear. Now, this is a cool verse to go look up later if you want to study this out. Because Mark uses the same Greek word twice, back to back. And the way he says it, and the way that they would read it then, is we were afraid, and then we were really afraid. Think about that. There was a storm, and the storm was just blowing, and it was beating on us. And our boat was taking on water, and we thought we were going to die. We were afraid. And then he stood up, and he spoke to the wind and to the waves. And then we were really afraid. Because we recognized whose presence we were in. What kind of man is this that can speak to the wind and to the, and they, see, we were afraid, but then we were really afraid. They realized, Jesus is trying to teach them that the, the latter fear was much greater than the former fear. When they realized that their fear, when they realized just happened, what just happened, when they realized whose presence they were in, when they realized that the presence in which they were in was greater than the fear in which they feared, just listen, just for a moment, just for a fleeting moment, their confidence in Jesus overwhelmed their fear. Whew. I could end right there, and we could go home, and I'm telling you, that's the message right there. Their confidence in Jesus, knowing in that moment, in that scary, 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 scary moment, knowing whose presence they were in, Knowing who was in the boat with them overwhelmed all the fear that they just felt. When fear becomes the centerpiece of our life, we get out of balance. But we need to understand that the centerpiece of our lives is greater than the fear that we fear. So <laughs> they get back and and it's a couple days go by and now this is this trip is fresh on their mind. They've been thinking about this trip. It's unbelievable. I mean, no telling what they've been saying in a lot of side conversations, right? Because you know they've got to have been talking about what just happened. Probably for days they were talking about, can you believe? And they're like, I, don't, I can't even, I can't even believe it. It was, it was just crazy. So Jesus comes, he says, listen guys, I want to talk about this trip. I want to I want, to, I want to give you an illustration from nature. I want to talk about what's going on. Listen, don't be afraid. And they're like, Jesus, we got it. You already said that. Don't be afraid. We, we're with you. Don't, don't, got it. Got it. Don't be afraid. We're not, we're not afraid anymore. And he says, no, listen, don't be afraid of those who kill the body. Don't be, now, this, this is a really, really cool verse, and I really challenge you to go, because I'm not going to go into great detail about it. There's too much, but he says, don't be afraid of anything that can kill your body. Don't be afraid of those that can destroy, dismember, tear apart your body, okay? And he says, but cannot kill your soul, okay? Now, in this moment, Jesus underscores what a lot of us grew up believing, that there's more to you than meets 
the eye, okay? And there's more to you than just your body. We agree, not just a body. And, and he goes beyond that, and Jesus believed that. And he says, don't be afraid of those who kill your body, but cannot kill the soul, okay? If you're going to fear something, then place, some, place it at the center of the heart and your emotions. If you're going to fear something, he says, rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both the body and soul, and he says, in hell. Now, this English translation, this really bothered me. So I played with it for a little while. First of all, the word hell here is not uh, translated hell. It's actually Gehenna. And Jesus is referring to an actual destruction that's going to take place. And the word soul here uh, is, is nephesh, and it doesn't actually mean eternal. It's not talking about eternal soul. It's talking about life that can be destroyed. Your breath, your life can actually be destroyed. And so Jesus is kind of giving them a hyperbole here, and he's a little bit prophesying of the destruction that's about to happen. And he says, if you're going to fear something, you should fear the God, the God who created the body and the soul and has oversight and gave you the very breath that you breathe. Okay? I Fear the thing that breathed life. See, in the beginning, and you can find that word soul and nephesh, uh, written when, when Adam was created, Adam, he took the dust on the ground and he created Adam. When he created Adam, Adam was just a body, right? When Jesus breathed life into him, that word nephesh comes into place. And that's when the breath of life came into him. And he's saying, listen, if you're going to fear something, fear the very one that gave you that life to begin with. So he's saying, listen, guys. Don't you remember the boat ride? Don't you remember the boat ride and what happened? You were afraid. You were fearing for your life. You were fearing for the storm. You were screaming like little girls. You were all just freaking out. Listen, there was something that you should have been more dialed into in that moment than the storm. And when I spoke to the storm, you realized in that moment, you shouldn't have been so focused and dialed into the storm. Your focus should have been the one who can speak to the storm. The one who actually gave you life. And then he gives this, to, he gives this example. He says, and aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? And the disciples are like, uh, yeah, yeah, that's pretty common in the marketplace. That's just the world that they lived in. And he says this, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. So what are you saying, Jesus? I mean, you care about nature? Yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. God, your father, your heavenly father, cares about, he created nature. He cares, and these seemingly worthless sparrows. I mean, you can buy sparrows in the market, no big deal for a penny. He, he cares, and he cares about those. When he sees one fall to the ground, he sees that, and he cares about it. And then he goes on, he says, but let's not talk about the sparrows. Let's talk about you in verse number 30, 31. He says, even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. He's saying, there's nothing you should be afraid of because I care about this, these worthless things to you. You can buy them two for a penny, like no big deal. 
I, I care about those. God, the God of this universe cares about those. But he goes beyond that and he says he actually knows the amount of hairs on your head or the lack thereof for some of you. And he cares about that. He cares about that. Why? Because you are worth way, way more to him. This is what Matthew writes. Don't be afraid because you're worth way more to him. God is a personal God. God knows your name. God knows what you're going through. God knows the situation. God knows the pain that you go to bed with at night, the fear, the anxiety, the worry that you carry around. God is a personal. He gets the sparrows, but more than the sparrows, he cares about you. He's so concerned with you. And for many of us, the deepest valleys, facing the deepest things that overwhelm us in fear, you need to know with confidence that God knows exactly what you're going through. And not only that, He is so concerned and He cares so much. Rest assured, God knows where you're at. Even when bad things happen, even when prayers go unanswered, you can trust Him. Because he knows where you're at. So finally, the disciples are starting to get it, kind of. And when I say that, kind of, but not really. I mean, maybe two or three or four of them. They at least are starting to get the language so they can say the right things. You know, they're like, okay, okay. So we were afraid because there was something to be afraid of. But you're saying that if we'll get our eyes off of the something that we need to be afraid of and we get our eyes on you because you're with us, then we won't be afraid of it. And don't be afraid. Right, Jesus? He's like, okay, yeah, you're kind of getting it. You're, you're going with me here. And so he says, how about another field trip? Now, so he takes them on another field trip. Another story isolated story for some of you, but it's not isolated at all. It's still leading where Jesus is taking them. So you know this story, and he takes them, and they end up in a field, this giant pasture with 20-plus thousand people. We know there were 5,000 men. They're in this giant field, and so Jesus starts teaching to them, these giant crowd of people. He's teaching to this crowd all morning long. Then afternoon roll, all afternoon all afternoon, all evening. Finally, the disciples, they're trying to get Jesus' attention. They're like, listen, you, you know, they're probably in the back going, you know. Jesus pauses for a moment. They tell Jesus, they're like, listen, you got to stop. We got to send these people home. You've gone way too long, way too long. We got to send these people home. They haven't eaten, and, and they're starving, so we need to, you know, we love, I mean, what you said, right, guys, I mean, no, what you said was good. I mean, we're with you, but they got to go. And Jesus goes, I got an idea. You know, why don't you feed them? And they go, you want us to feed them? <laughs> now he's doing stand-up. Now he's doing stand-up. Not only is he a preacher, teacher, he's a comedian. This is awesome. You know, and they said, well, here's the truth, Jesus. Um, there's actually not enough food in the region to feed them, so that's a nice try, but thank you. It's not going to happen. And somehow, and you know this story, Matthew tells us this too, but somehow Jesus ends up with the boys' lunch, and he takes the lunch, and he prays over it. Matthew says, listen, I was there. 
I saw this with my own eyes. He took that little boy's lunch, and he gave it to us 12. (laughs) And we performed a miracle. I mean, we started passing it out, and we performed it. You're not going to believe this, but it was it was crazy. We, we performed a miracle. We, we gave these people food. I mean, Jesus just, he, he prayed a prayer, a magic prayer or something, and it was crazy. It was crazy. See, the first miracle, it had nothing to do with Jesus being able to control nature. That's what it was. It wasn't about that. It was about the fear thing. This miracle, it's way more deep than, than we can imagine. And so he says, man, we started distributing food out, and man, Everybody was fed. Everybody. I remember being so far in the back of the crowd, I could barely even see Jesus. And I'm looking across the crowd at the other disciples. All of us, our chins were on the ground. It was unbelievable. We fed all these people. It was fascinating. And the the apostles at this time, they were at an all-time high. Their confidence was just through the roof. Look at what we did. Look at what we did through with Jesus through us. And this is amazing. And then here's what happens. Matthew tells us that as they finished, when the last person had finished being fed, as soon as they finish, Jesus has this crazy idea. And it says this, verse number four, uh, 22, uh, chapter 14, Matthew, uh, verse number 22. It says, immediately Jesus made them, made the disciples get into the boat. Now, the Greek word here is called anakazos, and it means forced. Forced or coursed is another word. But Jesus forced them into the boat. So they go and they feed all these people, and, and 20 plus thousand people were fed. They're at an all time high. Maybe it was Jesus thinking he didn't want them to get arrogant or big head. I don't know what his thing was. But for whatever reason, Matthew says, we finished feeding these people. And immediately, like in that moment, Jesus made us get on the boat. And I started wondering, why do you think Jesus had to force them on the boat? Because they thought about the last boat ride they were on with Jesus, right? Okay, the first boat ride, they followed. Jesus got on the boat. They followed. They're like, yay, we're with him. We're going to eat with Jesus stuff. The second boat ride, Jesus is like pushing them on the boat. He made them. He forced them to get on the boat. And I'm, I'm playing a little bit with that. But this is what it says. It says this. He forced them on the boat. And Peter's probably thinking, there's no way I'm getting on the boat. You remember what happened last time? John's like, I remember what happened last time. I was shoveling water, and then he asked us that dumb question of why aren't we afraid when we're about to die. And I remember that. So I'm not just going to walk on the boat. That story reminded me of when I adopted Jenica when she was a baby. I met her when she was about one and a half. By the time I actually got her home, she was just turning four. She had just turned four. And so we find out that we have to give her all of her immunizations because we were getting her in preschool. At the time, she didn't even talk. She was four and and couldn't talk at all. And so we had to give her all of her immunizations, and we found out that it was 12, 12 immunizations. And uh, now we we were, I was poor, (laughs) and so I went to the clinic because they do it for free uh, there in in, uh, Wichita County, Wichita Falls County or whatever, Wichita County. And so we go to the clinic, and 
she's got to get 12 immunizations, okay? So here's the way it goes. We get into the exam room, and Jenica's sitting on the table, and they're like, we're going to give her 12 shots. You look at Jenica, and she's just sitting there. No big deal. Okay, so we're going to give her 12 shots. Listen, Dad, the best way to do it is we're going to go all at the same time. And I was like, like, you're just going to mix them all up. And I wasn't sure what was going to happen. And now this is a clinic, and I'm not knocking clinic or whatever, but later from my pediatrician, I found out that's not the way they would have done it. <laughs> Either way, I was at the clinic. So they said, okay, put her in your lap. So I put her in my lap. She doesn't care. She's just looking. Uh, they said, Dad, when, when we get ready, we're going to wrap your legs around her legs and wrap your arms around her arms, and we're, we're just going to go to town. And I was like, okay, this is going to be awesome. They walk in with this tray of needles, 12 to be exact, and they place six needles on this side of us and six needles on this side of us. Jenica didn't care. Looking at those needles, like, sweet. They take the caps off of all the needles to get prepared. She don't care. No big deal. They take and they rub her arm, swab her arm, and they start uh, getting ready. And they said, okay, we're going to go at the same time. Jenica doesn't care. She's just looking. One, two, three. They gave her six shots in each arm in like 30 seconds. It was so fast. By the second shot in each arm, she realized now... Because she didn't know before, but she realized now what was happening. And after the second or third shot in her arm, I mean the deepest, roarest devil scream. I mean, to this point, she was this little bitty cute Haitian girl. All of a sudden, from her toenails came this, like, growl. And you could see steam and stuff. She's screaming. And I'm just holding her as tight as I can as they give her the shot. It was unbelievable. So about a month later, we got to go for a checkup to the doctor's office. When we walk in and she notices that it's a doctor's office, because she's been from Haiti, so this is not normal stuff. She wasn't born going to doctor's office. So when she walks in and realizes that we're in a doctor's office, that same, no, came out. It was awful. And then a few years later, she had to get another shot, just one, when they brought in that needle. She saw it coming down the hall. I mean, crazy, psycho, psycho crazy. Why? Because she knew what was about to happen. I'm not saying it's the same thing. But the apostles know what Jesus is up to. Jesus is up to something. They've already been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. And so... The disciples know what's up, and they don't want to go. And so Jesus has to force them on the boat, says in verse number 22, Matthew 14. Immediately, the, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. He gets them into the boat. He forces them onto the boat, and then he starts pushing the boat off. And as he does, he releases the boat. The disciples are going, what? And Jesus waves at them, and he says, I'm not going with you. What? The last boat ride was awful, but you were with us. What? And he says, I'll meet you on the other side. I'm going to dismiss the crowd. And so Jesus pushes them off, and he goes to dismiss the crowd. The disciples got to be freaking out. They start rowing. They're rowing across the water. 
they're rowing. One hour goes by, two hours goes by, they're just rowing. And then one of them notices, I mean, as it's, it's dark now, but they can see like lanterns maybe on the side. And they, one of them's like, you know what, uh, those lanterns we see over there from those people, the crowd leaving, uh, we're not going anywhere. We've been in the same spot. We'll just keep rowing, row harder. So they start rowing harder. They don't go anywhere. They're rowing harder. They're not going anywhere. Harder. I mean, they're just rowing, and they're not going anywhere. They're like on a row machine, okay? And they don't go anywhere. And then all of a sudden, Matthew says in verse 25, shortly before dawn. Now, they went and fed the crowd because it was starting to get late, and it was about to get dark. So we're just going to guesstimate they get on the boat an hour, maybe two after dark. Either way, they have now been on the boat for a long, long time. It says, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Now, I understand if you haven't been a Christian very long, or maybe you're not a Christian and you're struggling with some things, you look at Jesus calming the storm, speaking of storm, you're like, okay, listen, I can buy that because maybe the storm just happened to be dying down. But now you're going to try and tell me that Jesus walked on the water. Listen, I ain't buying that. I ain't buying that. Well, I want to remind you as the exchange, and this is, this is, in my opinion, the way most churches should be, but I can't, you know, I'm not speaking to them. In my opinion, for me and this church, we don't believe Jesus walked on the water because the Bible tells us so. Okay? It's better than that. We believe that Jesus walked on the water because Matthew was there. Matthew documented this. He didn't write it for the Bible. He documented. Matthew saw this firsthand. Not only that, John. John, who was with Jesus from the Jordan River days all the way through the crucifixion, he spent most of all of Jesus' ministry with Jesus. John was there, and John, he saw this, and he wrote it. He didn't write the Bible. He wrote the document of John saying what he saw and experienced. And then Mark wrote this, and, and Peter was there, and Peter gave Mark this information and Peter was there. So firsthand, Peter saw this. So it's not about the Bible tells me. So it's we have three different accounts of men who actually saw it happen. He walked on water. Now, not only do they see what happened, this is how we, we know it's true. They didn't just tell us that it happened, but they also tell us their embarrassing reaction to what happened. Now that's important, okay? And trek with me here. They tell us their embarrassing reaction because literary critics, they have a device that they use that they refer to as the criteria of embarrassment. This is a real thing. And they use this all the time. They use it in news articles and writings, fake news, you know, that kind of stuff. They use this criteria of embarrassment. And it says this, the criteria, criteria of embarrassment goes like this. If somebody is writing a story about a revered or a respected person, they are not and will not invent stories that make that person look bad. Okay? So if there is an account in a story that makes a person who is supposed to be the hero of the story look bad, it's probably 
authentic because no one actually will make up stories to make the hero of the story look bad. Okay? And then it goes on and it says that if you do find embarrassing things about heroes in the story, usually they will just leave it out rather than even put it in. So one of the things, one of the reasons that people have rejected the Gospels, rejected Christianity, and then many reasons they've come back to becoming a Jesus follower is because they many times uh, engage with the details of the text and then they bump into what we just talked about. The criteria of embarrassment. So they take the gospel and they go, this is true. I don't believe it. I'm not a Jesus follower, whatever. But then when they begin to read Matthew's account, Peter's account, Luke's account, John's account, they begin to read these things. They begin to recognize the, the significance of their writing. And these guys aren't making that up because you don't make up stuff like that. Because during when the gospels were written, John was still ministering. When the document of John was written, he was still ministering. When the document of Matthew was written, Matthew was still ministering. Peter was still ministering, okay? So these guys were superheroes in the Christian faith, in this Christian movement. They were rock stars. And so there's no way, and this is what literary critics say, there's no way that these guys would make up their own embarrassing reactions while they are in the midst of the, the pinnacle of their ministry on planet Earth. They wouldn't make that stuff. If it was true, they'd probably just leave it out rather than make it up. The fact that they wrote it tells us it was pretty true, pretty significant. They tell us these embarrassing, crazy reactions. I got way ahead of myself for a second. So they start to write this down, and here's how Matthew writes it. Here's what Matthew says. In Matthew 14, verse 26, Jesus has told them over and over and over, you got to remember this, don't fear, don't fear, don't fear, fear not, don't fear, don't fear, don't fear. Matthew writes this, when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the lake, they were terrified. They were terrified. And then Matthew writes this, it's a ghost. Okay, this is what they screamed out. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear like little bitty children. Okay, so they might have left that part out, you know, but it was so true. And so Matthew says, yeah, this is what happened. Matthew, are you sure you want to write that? You know, he probably had somebody going over his document kind of critiquing some of the the grammar areas, and they're like, you know, you, you thought it was a ghost? You sure you want to? Yeah, write that. It was unbelievable. And, and Mark is probably sitting there with Peter, and Peter's telling Mark what to write, and Mark is writing. He goes, he looks at Peter and he says, so you want me to write that? And Peter's like, yeah, I want you to write that. You want me to write that you thought it was a ghost? You have been a fisherman your entire life, been on these waters your entire life, and you want me to write you, you, you thought it was a ghost? Yeah, I want you to write I thought it was a ghost. It was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. Nobody would make this up. 
Nobody would make this up. And then Jesus says, but Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. He says, guys, listen, don't be afraid. How many times have we done field trips? How many sermons have you watched me preach and preached with me? How many times have we done miracles? You've watched me perform miracles, and you've even been a part of these miracles. And how many times have I said, don't fear, don't fear, don't fear? Listen, guys, you've got to understand this, that as long as I am in your life, as long as I'm here with you, you have zero, zero Nada, zilch, none, no reason to fear. There's something even greater to, to fear, and that's the one who actually gave you life. I, I should overwhelm your fears because you understand who I am and what I'm capable of. But once again, it doesn't stick. Jesus' little pep talk, it doesn't stick. And that's really encouraging for me. Maybe it's encouraging for you because sometimes it doesn't stick with us either. Amen. So they feared, they continued to fear all the way up to the very end. The end of Jesus' ministry, and a lot of you know this part, they're back and forth between Jerusalem and, and Judea, and they stop off in Bethany, and, and they go to see Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters. They raise Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Remember this story? And then they make their way into the city. Now, this is crazy. When they saw, when the apostles saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, Pharisees were, a lot of Pharisees were there, a lot of religious people were there, a lot of people were there. So, word spread like crazy. I mean, this was just rumor city. I mean, it just spread like crazy. They saw Lazarus raised from the dead. And as they're walking into the city, all of a sudden, people are lining the streets. Think about this. Think about this. They have been under the thumb of Rome forever. That, I mean, Rome has dominated and oppressed them for a long time. And they knew that there was a Messiah going to come one day. And so they just saw Jesus. I mean, they saw him. Wait, wait, wait. They saw him speak to the wind and the waves. <laughs> What? That's crazy. Okay? The storm stopped. <laughs> then they see him take some loaves and fish and feed 20,000 people. <laughs> Unbelievable. Then, then they watch him walk across the sea to the boat. Crazy. Then they're standing there and they watch him go stand at the tomb and he cries like a human, like a normal person. And then he says, Lazarus, come out. And La we had to take off his. He was dead. We and now we're walking into the city. You got, I'm trying to paint a picture. I need you to see this. They're walking into the city. We're told that they're lining the streets with palm branches. And they're waving. And they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. The disciples are like. Yes, finally, we knew that he's going to be crowned king. He's going to take us. He's going to set us. Oh, man, this is what we've been waiting for. This, oh, this is awesome. This is awesome. So they go and they hang out. They tarry in the city for a little while, a couple weeks, and then all of a sudden they're having this meal together, this Passover meal. Jesus says this, okay, guys, listen. 
I want to tell you something. He probably, he probably didn't say this, but in my mind, I like to think he says this. He probably says, John, write this down. But he says this. I'm establishing or I'm inaugurating a new covenant. A brand, this is powerful, a brand new relationship between God and people. Nothing like you've ever seen before. Nothing like the past. This is a brand new. Jesus is telling, after everything, now think of everything they just saw. When he says that, they're like, oh, yes, yes, yes. I mean, Peter's got to be looking at John going, I knew it. It's happening. And then he says this. He says, listen, I've already told you guys this, but I'm going to say it again. We are starting a new movement. My ecclesia, my assembly, my congregation, my gathering. And I've already told you that once we establish this movement, that there is nothing on planet Earth that can stop it. Oh, they got goosebumps. This is the greatest speech ever. I mean, this is incredible. Jesus is saying and establishing these things. And they know this is the moment. This is the moment they waited for their whole life. And then Jesus says this. Not only that, I'm going to step into the law. I'm going to step into the law, and I'm going to take the role of Moses. And I give you a new command. I mean, they have dreamed about this. For generations, their grandparents, 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 grandparents have talked about this moment, this moment. Finally, finally, he's going to come in. He's going to be crowned. I mean, the feeding, that was awesome. The walking on with all that stuff. But this moment, this is the moment that we've waited for. God's Messiah, God's Messiah is going to show up. He's going to reestablish the nation of Israel, and he's going to throw Rome out. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. They're so excited. So excited. And then Jesus got arrested. Did they panic? Yeah, they did. They panicked. They ran. Jesus got arrested. They watch him get dragged to Golgotha, and then he's crucified. And this new covenant, this new command, this new movement, bam, it's over. It's done. No more. We thought we knew who he was, but we didn't. It was exciting. It was exciting. We believed. We thought we saw enough evidence. We thought we saw enough evidence that was gonna, it was going to take us over the top. But he died. He died. And, and when he died, that tells us that a lot of what he said is not true. Because, listen, Rome could not crucify our Messiah. And they just did. So he's not our Messiah. Oh, can't believe we, we believe that. We've spent all these years following this guy around. And I don't know how he did what he did, but he's not. Man, we thought it was going to be in our life. We thought we were actually seeing it happen in our lifetime. Everything he said about himself, we either misunderstood it or he lied. And then all of a sudden, one day, they peered into an empty tomb. Not just an empty tomb. They turn and they see their friend, 
they see Jesus face to face and bam, they're back in business. They're back in business. It's on. Okay, they, they now realize this is it. This is going to happen. What Jesus said about himself was true. And they're back in business for one reason. And, and if, if you are a part of this church and you are tired of us saying this, then maybe this is not your thing. But I'm just telling you, the reason they were back in business is the resurrection. Okay? The resurrection to us is Easter Sunday. Yeah, Easter Sunday. Let's all go buy ridiculous clothes, expensive clothes, whatever, and let's dress up on our Sunday's finest. Let's come to church, have an Easter egg hunt, blah, blah, blah. And that's all fine and good. But to them, Easter resurrection was everything. It was, to us, it's an event. It's something we celebrate. It comes around. To them, it, it, it solidified everything that they had hoped, it solidified everything. It validated everything that Jesus said. It validated everything that he said about himself. And suddenly, for the first time, it, the, the New Testament makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense why Jesus had been saying some crazy things. It all led up to this moment. They started thinking, and, and the world, after the resurrection, the world for them was still a scary place. They still scattered. They still had to run. They still were beaten. It was still a scary place, but they learned lessons. They learned lessons from the boat. They learned lessons from the feeding of 5,000. They learned lessons from the other boat ride. They learned lessons from the Lazarus thing. And they heard Jesus say, they finally got this message when Jesus said, Fear not, for I am with you. They finally feared not. They came out of hiding. They were willing to face down the very men that arrested and beat and crucified Jesus. And they went on to change the world. Why? Because fear not changed the world. Think about that. Fear not changed the world. A generation of men and women, first generation Christians, lost their fear of death because you lose your fear of death when the one that you serve, you watch him conquer death it makes you lose your fear of death in fact this this was really cool there is a a second century medical examiner he wrote and documented medical writings and and you can go search this it's really awesome his name was claudius gallinus and he writes a medical journal and he had the opportunity he was one of the doctors who had the opportunity to stand around the outsides of the arena the gladiators would come in and do their big battles and all this. They'd bring in animals, have the fights and all that. But the way it worked back then is you couldn't examine a body if it was dead. So med school was difficult, you know. They, you couldn't perform autopsies and try to figure out what was wrong. So these, and this sounds really gruesome, and I'm sorry. I don't mean to get gory. I'm just going to tell you how it was. They would line up, these medical examiners would line up outside the arena They would clear the animals out after the battle, and whoever else was walking, they would clear them out. And the medical examiners, this is historical, would run into the arena and begin autopsies on living bodies. That was how they studied. That was how medicine, that the reason medicine didn't advance is because of this reason right here. And they could do that until the body died. Once the body died, 
It was against the law. They were not allowed to touch it. It had to be buried immediately. So this guy, Claudius Gallinus, he's uh, talking about Christians who are dying in this arena during the reign of Marcus Aurelius. And back in those days, he's, he's describing this. And he writes this down. And he writes this. This is his observation about Christians that entered into the arena during his time period. He says, For fearlessness of death and the hereafter is something we witnessed in them every day. Suddenly, Christians had no fear of death. They had no fear of what, what's next. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus changed every. When you worship, listen church, when you worship a risen Lord, when you worship someone who's mastered life, not only mastered life, but conquered death. And when that person says to you, fear not for I am with you, then there's not a lot to be really afraid of. Right? Because I've fastened my affection, I've fastened my attention on the one who deserves my trust. I may have fears pop up every now and then, but they will not be my boss because I am overwhelmed by him and I'm overwhelmed by who I am because of him. And that overwhelming uh just confidence in me takes away. It drives out all fear because I know who I am. See, it's okay to fear, okay? So this is not a, a don't fear, don't fear. I fear all the time. But I do not let fear control me. It doesn't have a place to run or to ruin my life. See, Peter, he failed in both boat rides, okay? He got an F. Peter denied he even knew Jesus after the Passover meal. Peter basically did everything wrong. He panicked during Jesus' arrest. He lied when he was questioned. He hid for a couple years after the resurrection. But he writes a letter to Christians in the first century who are like us, who believe but didn't have a chance to see. He writes a letter to them based on his experience. And he says this. Let me tell you what Christ has invited you to do. He's invited you to cast or to hurl or to heave or to throw your cares upon him. And Peter says this. He says, because I have the authority to tell you because he cares for you. I, I honestly, this is just 100% my opinion, my belief. And I believe that this verse was really inspired by Jesus standing at the tomb of Lazarus. When Jesus knew he was about to raise him from the dead, you know, Jesus had no reason to weep. But Peter tells us that Jesus wept. He stood there and he cried at the tomb because Jesus understood the pain and the suffering that we were going through as humans. And it broke his heart. And so I believe that Peter was probably inspired in that moment to say, listen, cast your cares on him because I can promise you with confidence, with full confidence, he cares for you. He cares about what you're going through. 
He would probably say like the psalmist, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, fear, you're not my boss. Will you stand with me this morning? See, fear can't be our boss because we have a better boss. That's what I hope you're gaining out of this series. Listen, you're going to walk around with some guilt every once in a while. But guilt shouldn't be your boss because you have a better boss. And your better boss said, therefore, now there is no condemnation. It's done. Okay? So you can walk around and have guilt every once in a while. But once it becomes the boss of you, it's a problem. You can walk around and be, you know, you can ha- want things. But listen, when, it be- when envy becomes the boss of you, it's a problem. When fear, and we're going to have fear, there's things that, that makes us anxious. But we're taught, we're taught to be anxious for nothing. But in everything, when we do have that fear, present our petitions to the Lord. Give them to Him. Peter says that cast your cares on Him because He cares for you. You have a boss who conquered life. Man, if everybody realized that, if we lived as if we really had a boss that conquered life, man, if we lived as if we really had a boss who actually conquered death, if we had a boss who actually is who he claimed to be, which, matter of fact, he is who he claimed to be. So the life of Jesus is actually an invitation and it's a promise. It's an invitation to follow him because there's a lot, a lot of benefits when when we're awakened to the fact that he's given us a free gift, when you get that in your mind and you follow him, and then it's also a promise. It's a promise that when you follow him, you have nothing to fear because you're never going to be alone. So it's an invitation to say, look, God, I recognize the gift you've given me and the things you've done for me. Man, I want to do what you did. I want to live like you lived. We just close your eyes all across this room. I'm going to pray a prayer. I want you to repeat this prayer after me. Will you do that? Dear Jesus, I choose today to follow you. I accept the gift, God, that you gave me, and I willingly follow you. I want to walk like you. I want to talk like you. I want to do the things you did. And I want to see the way you saw the world, people. So today, Father, I ask you to help me remove all fear, remove all doubt, all worry, all anxiety as I follow you. Jesus, you are the only boss I need. Jesus' name I pray. Come on, now in your own way, will you just seal that this morning? Father, I pray right now, God, that you seal that on our hearts, that you seal that in our minds, God. Lord, that we recognize today that there is absolutely nothing, nothing that we can fear that should become the boss of us because you are overwhelming us with your power. The fact that you just breathe life into us, God, is enough for me fact that you came, Jesus, and you willingly laid down your life, not just laid it down, but when you got out of that grave, Jesus, you changed everything. The whole game changed. Life as we knew it changed. God, and and for some unfortunate reasons, 
the world today in, in 2019, almost 2020, we're trying to get back to that original day when you changed everything. So Jesus, we love you. And we thank you for that gift of life. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody shout it, amen. Come on, you can do better than that. Say amen. Amen.